Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Owen. And today we're talking about Psycho. Yes. Which has had a 4K restoration, I believe. Yes. And that's why we went to see it at the Mac. Yes. And I must say, I kind of... I'm not sure I quite liked it. Was that because we were sat too close to the screen? It might be. But I also thought the restoration was too sharp. So, you know, you could see... I don't know if you noticed, but it seemed like Janet Leigh had had a mole removed on the upper... On her right side of it. Yeah. I think you would have seen that in lower definition. I don't think so. I definitely did. I don't think so. It was quite noticeable. I don't think so. I think uh, this restoration brought out all of those things that would not have been visible. Uh, Or, you know, I mean, I've seen the film. I never noticed it before. Mm. Right. Uh, So so I think it was just too too sharp. Um, I thought it looked magnificent. Um, I think one of the things it does point out, though... Is the difference in like film stocks and kind of lighting and that kind of thing because it becomes even more clear than it otherwise would when you know a certain lens is being used to make something extremely sharp and clear mm. compared to something that makes things a little bit more murky or out of focus mm. or a shot's being cropped. You know, the differences from shot to shot are sometimes very noticeable. Yes, I mean, don't get me wrong, some aspects of it I really loved, like the closing shots with. Uh, uh, Tony Perkins in the jail. Mm. I mean, just visually, they were a work of art in themselves, actually. Um, I've seen the film a few times, and I know you have as well, but you said you haven't seen it in a while. I haven't seen it in like um, about 15 years. Yeah, so. it's probably about the same for me. Mm. Um, and seeing it on a big screen is all the difference. Of course. It really is. And I think we saw it at a big screen at university, maybe, and that's a big-ish screen. It's in a, um, it's in a, like a lecture hall, and it's being projected, but it's not the same as in a cinema. It's no. it's something really special, and those shots in particular, like that one you point out, they become something even more. I know in that environment. And the thing about this film is, it has so many shots like that, right? And actually, it was mm. part of my what I was thinking. I was thinking, you know, when I first saw this film, you know, which must have been when I was a teenager, I I just didn't have. I mean, I loved it, but I didn't have the the visual education to fully mm. appreciate it. Right, and actually, most of the things that impressed me now were all visual. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, obviously, they were narrational as well. Yeah, uh, but for example, you know, the aspects of the screenplay, I thought, whoa. Yeah, so right, do I. Yeah. You know, uh, whereas you know the the storytelling aspects, the visual storytelling aspects, and the visuals themselves seem to be more powerful than ever, really. Yeah, the way that um, the visual dimension is used, and it's not just kind of camera work and setting, it's also acting as well and gesture and performance. The way all that's used to reveal character and make you think differently about characters as you seem to learn more about them Mm. is extremely impressive. Particularly that's the case with Anthony Perkins, because you're constantly re-evaluating what you know about him depending on a gesture that he makes Mm. or the way he reacts to something. Mm. You know, because the idea is... You're not supposed to know what the big twist is, and so the film's called Psycho, and it's about this woman who kind of snaps. You know, she's kind of stressed, and she's got a relationship. She's not sure where it's going, and there's this forty thousand dollars that lands on her desk that she's supposed to take to the bank, and she goes, "I could just run away with this." Mm. And the first thirty minutes or more of the film is her running away with the money, mm. and you know, getting maybe in trouble with a cop. You don't know, and it's it's very tense. And you're thinking she's the psycho, right? That's kind of the idea. You're not expecting her to just die in mm. the middle and mm. it could, to be about something completely different. Spoiler. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's one of the films that's 62 years old, and it's one of the most famous films ever, but there you go. Um, and, but the thing is, you, you meet Anthony Perkins, and obviously he's an you know, important character, and you kind of sense that immediately with how much you meet him. But maybe not... If you didn't know anything, you maybe wouldn't think he's any more important than the cop, for instance, whom no. you get a lot of time with. I mean, he takes a full half hour to appear. Yeah. Um, but the thing is with Anthony Perkins is you are constantly learning things about him. So at the start, he initially seems timid, a bit nebbishy maybe, kind of, and not at all threatening. But then, you know, one or two that he... He has this argument with his mother, and then the conversation with um, uh, Marion Crane about the mother starts to reveal things, and you start to feel slightly differently about what's going on. And then he's looking at Marion Crane through the hole mm. in the wall, and you know he he obviously becomes a character of interest. But it's you know, so it's partially done through the screenplay. Obviously, that conversation scene where they're having sandwiches is very important, mm. but so much of it is gently and gradually done through setting up this guy you know and then looking at how he responds to things I think a lot of it was just done through lighting as well so I forget the exact moment it might have been when he's looking at the car yeah going down into the swamp yes you know but there there was a play of light shadows on his face right and then he was kind of smirking yeah on top of the shadows and then he was anxious yeah but it was like you felt the lighting... Well, at one moment I thought, oh, the lighting is doing all his acting for him. And I thought, no, it, it's like, you know, it's an interplay of what he's doing with the lighting, and that's what makes it brilliant, really. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of that, because it's a very, very dark film. I mean, those scenes with the sister and the boyfriend in the uh, motel, with the lights off, mm. yeah, it's really dark. You can barely see them. Yeah, they're like outlines, really. So I think kind of the light is magnificently used here uh, as an expressive uh, element in conjunction you know with the acting and everything else um, I, w- I want to mention some things as well because or just you know what struck me mm-hmm. anew or differently this time um, the scenes in the motel room where the camera goes under the window yeah uh, the opening scene Oh, into the window through yeah. at the start, yeah. Um, so, first of all, I thought that was like so magnificent that it's probably now a cliche, mm. but it's still magnificent, <laughs> right? Uh, and then, what, what I got more this time was that Hitchcock manages to create an ambiance of carnality, right? Like of sex, of yeah, mm-hmm. of like need that's evoked very powerfully. And of course, you know, everybody credits, you know, Janet Lee because yeah, she's so beautiful, uh, and so on, and also in the way that she's filmed. You know, but also John Gavin, yeah, who is very uh wooden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no other word for it, but who's got that incredibly big physique, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think kind of you know, you you understand what the pull is between them, and particularly why she would be pushed to steal forty thousand, yeah, dollars, mm. yeah. Um, so, so, so that to me, and maybe it was the big screen, yeah, um, that you're invaded by these images, but but the this kind of 
damp, fetid sexuality, <laughs> you know, came across like kind of quite powerfully. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the physicality of it, the carnality of it. Uh, so that I, that had, I mean, it had registered, but not with the power that it did in this uh, viewing. I was trying to watch it, and it's an impossible exercise, as though I had never seen it before, and trying to imagine what it would be like for someone who didn't know what was going to happen. Because even before I saw Psycho for the first time, I knew what was going to happen. Mm. It's extremely famous. Mm. Um, and I find it, it's impossible to get into the head, I suppose, of someone who was you know because the thing was it was a twist it was it was a few twists i mean one of the twists is she dies another twist is that uh anthony perkins is his mother and is the Mm. killer um and you know that they made appeals at the time you know don't tell people and it's partly an appeal and it's also partly like that's that's the publicity right get people in it's like you know usual suspects had something had the same thing don't tell people who kaiser sozi is i remember you know it well i say i remember i know because i was too young still it's 95 um, outside the cinema in Leicester Square, I think mm. um, there was the poster for Usual Suspects, which was the five guys in the lineup, and someone had just circled <laughs> <laughs> for the for the queue of people <laughs> waiting to go in. Um, but you know, it's it's so hard to imagine. Kind of okay, if I I'm trying to think, if I don't know what's going to happen here, how am I supposed to be responding to Anthony Perkins and so on, and and do I find it plausible? You know the way that the film is trying to pull a fast one on me and fake it out and not reveal what's happening. And so on. It's I, I'm I, like I say, it's really hard to do that. I did find myself unconvinced by some of it. It does so feel like the film is so keen for you to. Kind of, I, I suppose the other thing I want to say, and it's it's somewhere in the same ballpark, is um, that it was interesting watching it having seen Dress to Kill recently. Yes. Which we podcasted on. So clearly influenced by Yeah, absolutely. And I said at the time, like you might describe it as a psycho rip-off. It's mm. that close in some ways. And one of the things that we said about Dress to Kill was that there is so much in that film that is style over substance. And it's all about the shock. To the point mm. where it has two dream sequences that are murders just for the shock value mm. of them, really. Um, and I was thinking, you know, would I think the same thing about Psycho, seeing it with these fresh eyes in 1960? Because it is so canonised now. It's, you know, one of the yes. greatest films of all time and so on. Would I have thought that? So there's a lot of the film that really bored me. I think it spends a lot of time doing things that I wasn't interested in. Like what? Well, like a, a lot of the investigation, you know. But I also am thinking, like, is that because I know where it's going and I don't care about these characters? Or is it because it is actually not that interesting? Because oh. I did kind of feel like... Ultimately, the the value and the joy I got out of seeing it at the cinema today was in those few scenes that, you know, the, the iconic scenes. The shower scene, the murder on the stairs, the final scene. Mm. Um, I must say, that's not true of me. Yeah. I got, yeah, I got all kinds of different pleasures. You know, that amazing shot of uh, Anthony Perkins' eye, right? Um, the composition of... Uh, Tony Perkins' face as he's talking to to Janet Lee, Marion Crane, with the stuffed uh, birds mm. of prey behind him, and then these paintings, which both had a breast exposed. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think I never I never noticed it before. So you know, kind of visually, this is you know this innocent little twer- twer- yeah twerpy <laughs> boy, yeah, but it's stuffed birds of prey and kind of semi-naked women mm. so you know I noticed things like that again you know the 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 the, 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 the cinematography 
which was magnificent. I did have this thing which might connect with that, which was how I loved being in the cinema for the screening because there's a thing about I thought about endurance or the, endurance is the wrong word, but it's the word that came to mind. Yeah, that you know, not every moment in the film has to be a peak, right? And yet. And also, I'm quite a scaredy cat, and so and if I were watching it at home, I would pause. Yeah, so the way that the film was acting on me was completely different than I would had I been watching at home. Mm-hmm. And part of it had to do with uh, the fact that you have to endure. <laughs> yes, but in a, in a very positive way, yeah? That's kind of, you know, the, the film has control over what it's doing to you, or, or even if it's with you. Yeah, it still has an element of control that you take away from it when you watch it at home. Mm. So, you know, you can see things better. You can see things more clearly. You're invaded, yeah, by these very powerful things. I, I, you know, of course, this time around, I thought Anthony Perkins was so young and so handsome. It made the film more, you know, that kind of boyishness, almost like hypersensitivity, his low reaction to things, right? Because mm. I somehow remember the performance as being kinetic, and actually, it's not. It's very subtle. Like, all the expressions, you know, they're very small scale and kind of measured. Yeah, he never goes mm-hmm. wild at any point, really. Yeah, uh, so it's, it's kind of like a low-key performance that has had such an impact that you think of it as, a, you know... Mm. Uh, uh, do you think of it, I mean, in that imagined remembrance of it, do you think of it as kind of theatrical or, like, twitchy? Like, I think, that's how I would kind I of think, think of it, it as both theatrical and twitchy. <laughs> And actually, it's not, it's not, it's neither. No. You know, uh, I think it's very subtle and it's very measured and it's very, very effective. Mm. Um, so, so that, you know, uh, was a joy to see. The scenes with the policeman, yeah, just the size yeah. of the, those close-ups, right? Uh, I think the only one who gets a close-up like that, apart from him, is um, the private investigator. Yeah. So I thought it was interesting. I mean, he's not a cop. And he makes it clear that he's not a cop. He says so. But there is something about that authority figure that the film wants to impose on you with those extreme close-ups. Yes. Uh, and in the cinema, and sat right at the front as we were, they are so big and mm. so imposing. And particularly with the cop, you feel like everything Marion Crane is feeling. Yes. All the fear that you know, everything could come undone right now. Yes. Um, but then, of course, it contrasts it with the shots where he's across the road and he's just standing by his car and he's a very small part of the frame. But he's still just as imposing in yeah. a different way. He's got he's still got control of that scene. Yes. You know. I thought all of the scenes when she's buying the car, you know, so first when she's arrested by the policeman, then when she's buying the car, you know, the editing onto you know, the intercutting with the policeman, just waiting, just mm-hmm. doing nothing. You know, very, very um effective uh uh and suspenseful. Um yeah, I, I mean, uh, you know, I, it's the only thing that I find fault with is the psychoanalytic <laughs> or the fakey psychoanalytic explanation of what's happened, which seems to drag on. I'm, I mean, I'm sure it's very short, but actually it feels very long. It's, and, it's and probably stupid. a good five to ten minutes yeah. and because the film is going through this explaining. And again, this is something that Dress to Kill absolutely copies explaining what what the malady is and what actually happened and you know it's giving you so that you don't leave with any questions it's giving you the exact explanation of everything that you saw and who Norman was at the time and the fact that he's now not Norman and the idea of it being a kind of a fake psychoanalysis is um I'm not sure that's quite right because the thing is this is this this stuff was as 
sort of as it was understood at the time. It just was badly understood. You know, well, and the thing is, the film and the novel that it comes from was inspired by Ed Gein, who mm. was the uh, serial killer in, I think, Wisconsin. Um, and, you know, America had had its serial killers before then. But the thing about Ed Gein was he was found with women's severed heads in his shed or on his ranch or wherever it was. And this like this thing about that he was he had uh, skin suits made out of them that kind of thing like skin furniture and things so it was kind of an extra level of creepy and weird and it was supposed that he was trying to uh, or planning to make a kind of skin suit of his mother who was very overbearing and so on and that's obviously clearly inspires um, the mother in this um, and some of the stuff that came out was was really nonsense like, I think there was an article in Life magazine. Um, which had something along the lines of how he wanted to be a woman and felt and thought he you know wanted to somehow become change his sex and wanted to do it to himself but didn't have the confidence of saying and I think that kind of whole part of it was never substantiated. Um, whereas you know skin suits in the basement like absolutely was you could see them. I mean the um, thing is you know that what you're describing is so much more interesting what the film tells us <laughs> you know because like you know what the film does is it does this very 1960s television you know what I see as faux psychoanalysis mm. explanation that puts everything neatly in its place you know but I, th- I think that's kind of what I'm saying with Ed Gein so the idea was that this incredibly weird creepy thing had happened this, this story had come out and and the idea was that people were trying to explain that way put it in its place and say he wanted to be a woman he wanted to be his mother and this kind of thing like essentially that's what the film okay. is doing people thought they understood this yeah yeah well you know kind of I think that's the problem that's part of the problem of the way that you know, psychoanalysis was taken up in the United States and popularized. Mm. You know, it gives these neat path explanations to things that are not, you know, that are much more interesting and that are not so path and so on. I mean, this whole idea that he's a split personality and that, mm. you know, he's himself and his mother, you know, and that his mother takes over. I mean, please, really, you know. Yeah. I, I found it absurd. <laughs> uh, uh, so I did. I found it absurd. And done in that preachy tone of, oh, you know, aren't we clever because we're psychoanalysts and can, can understand this and make sense of everything for you. And you think, well, fuck <laughs> off. I, you know, I bet you there's a much more interesting explanation than what you're giving me because yours is so stupid and banal. The psychologist character is played in a, such a smug way. Mm. That's part of it, I think. Mm. He's like, he's, you know, everyone else is sat down and he's up and he's walking around. And, and I think a lot of that is just kind of visual interest. Keep the scene moving by having him move around the place, mm. you know, because otherwise it would just be five, six people sat down in a room talking, listening to one guy even. Um, but he he does it with, you know, as he's kind of commanding the scene and giving his speech and walking around, there's a smugness to the whole thing that is really unappealing. Yeah. You know, I think it's part of that. Um, so that was my least uh, favourite aspect of the film. Um, also, you know, the scenes with Vera Lynn and John Gavin, you know, the sister and the boyfriend returning back to the motel. I mean... I liked them, or I, you know, I, I could see their function, and they were beautifully filmed and so on. But you know, perhaps there was the actors. There was something that dragged there a bit as well. Um, He's certainly quite weak. I think she actually gives a better performance than I remember her giving. Ah. Um, and I think she's, yeah, you, know, you know, I mean, you really feel understand, you know, what she wants. She wants to find her sister, and she's annoyed with the people who don't seem to be helping, or you know. I thought more could have been made of the relationship between the sisters. You know, they lived together, yeah, kind of was their conflict, jealousy, like, mm. you know, so, so some more things could have been added on there. Um, 
and there's I don't know if it's a suggestion or if you're just following falling in the tropes of film viewing but I read a potential relationship developing between the sister and the, the boyfriend and the boyfriend mm. but that isn't really teased out in any way so that might just be me projecting well I mean I felt the same thing yeah. so I don't think you're just projecting but it's also saying that it might be kind of accidental <laughs> yeah it might be I mean, certainly there would be an almost incest taboo on that relationship, yeah? Well, I don't, it wouldn't be incest. I mean, there might be an element no, of betrayal well, to it. Um, you know, taking your sister's boyfriend. I, yeah. Well, it depends on how it's defined, but actually the act of having slept with the sister creates the incest taboo to sleep with the other sister. I mean, I know it's not, you know, in the legal <laughs> sense incest or in the strict definitional sense incest, but actually, you know, a lot of can canon law would have seen it as incest. You see that in the court case over uh, Catherine of Aragon marrying, or the divorce between ha Catherine of Aragon and Henry VIII. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so, well, I mean, you know. like, like, we can go back to the 1500s if you want. <laughs> uh, well, no, but I'm just saying. <laughs> okay, yeah, all right. You know, that uh, uh, the, it has an incestuous... Probably the reason why it wasn't, wasn't drawn more, because it would be, I think, read as semi-incestuous by, by audiences. Um, so I think for me what stands out the most is of course the visuals and um, the shower scene mm. is kind of you know it's been analyzed to death I don't think I can bring anything new you know to it except that in this print I saw things more clearly mm. right so you know the tear in Janet Lee's eyes or the globule of mm. water that may be a tear yeah, <laughs> yeah and the, where the camera kind of uh, uh, moves out, yeah. Um, you know that was very clear. Also, sonically, as the water goes, yeah, the, then the volume of the water going down the tap increases, yeah, mm. or or is extracted. You hear it much more clearly and powerfully, right? Yeah. You know, so kind of those elements I thought were like fantastic. A couple of things I <coughs> noticed for the first time in the shower scene were when she turns on the shower. It has a like a metallic screech mm -hmm. that is very much like the strings of the score that mm. you will then hear in a few seconds mm. time, which I thought that's not accidental, right? Sound is put mm. there deliberately, you know, mm. that's a bit of a shock and it kind of presages what's to come, which I never noticed. And the other thing was, and I don't think this is to do with 4K really, I think this is something you could see in a, uh, a previous version, but I think it might be to do with seeing it on such a big screen, mm. is... Um, when she's dead and the camera is zooming out from her face, I, I think, I mean, it's, it's such a minor thing to notice and, and it might not even be right, but it seemed to me that it was a frozen frame for the first few frames. It, it becomes clearly um, a, a shot that, you know, because the camera then pans mm. away and moves onto the money. But when it's right up close to her face, I wonder whether that is actually a still frame that has been cropped in to like extend the zoom out, if you see what I mean. It starts in even closer, and as it reaches a bit further out, then it becomes a yes. moving shot. And know. the other thing was, you, one of the reasons that you notice that it's moving is because you see her eyes move. You see, you pretending see her, to be dead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> her eyes just move just a little bit. A little bit, you notice it, yes. Um... Which again, I, I don't I don't remember ever noticing before, and it doesn't add or take anything from the scene. Well, actually, for me, it, it added to the creepiness because you could yeah. also, I mean, you could also imagine a twitch in a dead person, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, yeah. So I thought that with the eyes open, it was very effective uh, for me. I was reading um, recently talking about twitches of dead people that um, in Burma, um, that or what, what used to be Burma now Myanmar. 
um, when the British were over there, um, they used to burn people, a lot of, like cr- like cremating people, but in front, like on a pyre, right? Mm. And apparently the heat causes the muscles to contract, and so dead bodies would be lying down, and then they suddenly sit up, and then the British would go and like vomit and cry, <laughs> <laughs> and the Burmese would be going, "Ah, you little pussies!" <laughs> wow. Um, so I'm very glad we saw it um, on, you know, on a big screen. Uh, we missed the opening credits, so we can't comment on it. I mean, we we got there just as I was saying, directed by Alfred mm. Hitchcock. Uh, that's we, that's the Commonwealth traffic for you, the Commonwealth yeah. Games. So um, blame the Commonwealth. Yeah. So I missed uh, the opening credits, uh, but the music mm. it has to be one of the great scores of all time. This Bernard yeah. Herrmann score. Uh, I mean, what you were saying about the sound in the bathroom, and then kind of, you know, hearing it kind of. Um, Musicalized <laughs> sonically, uh, uh, you know, later on is is part of the way that the film works, and it's incredibly, yeah, mm. it feels so modern as well, you know, that yeah. th- those sounds, yes. Well, I mean that 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 kind of sound design of strings, mm. um, kind of high pitched, kind of squealing strings, sort of thing, and very sharp notes has definitely had a long-term impact on horror mm. you know that is a sound you expect to hear mm. um in horror these days and, and has been basically ever since psycho really um i think I, I guess in the films of the 70s and 80s that became kind of um established i'm not sure that you really heard it like that before then um yes. mind you i don't i mean horror was horror used to be very different didn't it? it it used to sort of not be about real people it used to be about the monsters and the frankensteins and so on yes um, i, I mean, guess I think this film is credited with being the first slasher film. Yeah, it, it gets, certainly gets put in that kind of, you know, like we've talked about the first film noir mm. and how you sort of can't have one, but there are early examples. And yeah. like, I think that's kind of how this comes in yes. with with slashers. Yeah. Yes. Though I find it more, you know, I find the noir m- much more difficult. Mm. But I, I, mind you, I'm not a big horror fan, mm. so I don't know. But I can't think of a film where somebody, like, literally goes with a knife slashing people <laughs> like they do in this film yeah sure you know so um though i'm sure you know friends will offer suggestions when they listen to the podcast um and it is one of the first films as well that um and one of the first kind of pieces of fiction that establishes the um the trope we were talking about in dress to kill of the kind of quote-unquote man in women's clothing killing yes, women yeah um i mean again that's I think that's really because of Ed Gein. You know, 1957, yes. he gets caught and all this stuff starts happening. The novel comes out, this film comes out. I think there had been a novel, a detective novel before that had something similar, um, like a transvestite killer sort of thing. Mm. But this is a very, very early example and certainly one that established that as a scary trope, mm. you know. Um, I think also, you know, this is very interesting and thematically in, in terms also what we were talking about Dress to Kill, you know, basically the woman gets killed for being sexual. You know, because there's a suggestion of that with Janet Lee as well, right? Mm-hmm. You know, she's having illicit, yeah, you know, yeah. sex. Uh, it's obviously been great fun. Yeah, she's drawn to it, like, she said, I'd be happy to lick the stamps, right, that line. <laughs> you know, so it's obviously something quite powerful with her. And then, of course, like, yeah, she gets killed in the most brutal way possible, right? Mm. Uh, and it's not because she's told the money, because... The money is really the film's MacGuffin, isn't it? Well, yeah, that's, you know? yeah, one uh, of those. That's a very Hitchcock words, and yeah. this is the most Hitchcock example of it. Of it, yeah. So, um, 
you know, so because because so, Tony Perkins doesn't know anything about the money. That's the point. Yes. If he did, it might be different. But he just it's in the newspaper. He just chucks the newspaper away with everything else. Yeah, you know. Well, he puts it in the back of the trunk. His yeah. truck plays with you at that moment. Well, he pick it up. Will you see it now? Right, it just yeah. goes in the back of the trunk. Um, so so that's all very effective. But there is there is this sense, you know, that uh, uh, is it Sharon Crane, Marion uh, Crane, Marion Crane, is a bad girl. Not because she's stolen 40000 because there are offers to redeem that. If you turn the money, mm-hmm. nothing will happen, yeah? You know, but actually, because she's had hot sex yeah, <laughs> outside of wedlock. Um, so so I think, yeah, that is mm. something. And during a work day as well. Yeah, in the, in the <laughs> middle of the day, the slattern. <laughs> no wonder she gets killed, right? There is yeah. that, there is that yeah, in the film, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think it can be dismissed. It's there. And also the mama-loving boy, you know, who we're told is not a transvestite, it also kind of plays into, I wouldn't say homophobic, but social ideas of homophobia mm. play into the way that, that those characters are deployed. Yeah. He's definitely played as feminine to some degree. Yes. You know, he's not masculine, that's for sure. And he's kind of quite, I guess you'd say sort of, sort of weak in some ways you know or, or kind of weedy maybe um, and I, there's one shot in particular where he's walking up the stairs at the end mm. or towards the end and you, and the shot is from behind him and there's a definite kind of feminine wiggle to the way he's walking that mm. I don't think is an accident I think mm. you're meant to see it as this that's a, a sign of him or a part of him yes yes um, yeah. and, the, and then the, the shot where he comes in with um with the wig on at the end to kill Marion and it's caught. That particular shot, I think, you know, I mean, you know, you're seeing it with eyes 60 years on, but it really has not aged very gracefully. Mm. That um, And there are some things where you're, and, and leading into, I suppose, that explanation that we've discussed from the psychoanalyst, you're really cringing, I think, at some of it. Yes. Yeah. So, and all of this to say that in spite of all of the faults, or all of, maybe they're not false. I mean, what I find mm. problems with the film, yeah, which are to me considerable. You know, there's also almost nothing in cinema that made me more gleeful. Mm. Like you know, just gave me sheer joy in the aesthetics of it. Really, you know, than some of the the shots in this film. When he got and the, the sequences actually, not just yeah, the shots, the sequences with editing and everything, just fantastic. Yes, yes, that's that's a very correct thing to point out is that it's in sequence and it's editing and it's about looks back and forth mm. and what people know and what they don't and how it's constantly being updated. So it's all about that, uh, which I think, I mean, that is, we talked again in just the Dressed to Kill podcast that uh, Brian De Palma has been compared to Hitchcock mm. and it's not just the fact that he copied Psycho, but you know, the scene that you loved in, in uh, Dressed to Kill so much in the mm. gallery mm. is all about that those editing patterns mm, yeah. going back and forth and what is she looking at and what is she seeing or not yeah. seeing and what is she thinking, how is she feeling? And actually, like that film, whole stretches of cycle feel like a silent film. Mm. Yeah? That kind of, you know, you're being told a story and you're being told a story through images and sounds and without dialogue. Yeah. You know, and it's beautiful. And, um, you know, something that I felt, uh, particularly during the shower scene, but also a couple of others, again, those kind of iconic scenes, the, the conversation over dinner and, the, the second murder um, but particularly the shower scene is when it happened and when the strings came in especially 
I just, I, I literally thought to myself, what a privilege. Mm. Do you know what I mean? To be watching this in the cinema. Like, it's, you know, I, I was, in some ways, I was finding real issue with the film. Because I, I think I was bored by certain things. And I think there are elements of it that are, that it's got really bad writing at some points, mm. I think. Some really weird pacing. Um, I mean, particularly, you know, uh, uh, after the murder in the shower, um, you see in forensic detail Norman Bates clearing everything up. And to the point where I was thinking, God, what is the point of seeing all of this? Like, there are there is montage. There are ways to edit this down and still tell us that he's cleaned up everything I, meticulously. I like that. I like that. I get it. But, but you know, I, I, was, I was thinking, this is taking a long, long time to do this, and I'm not sure that I see a significant purpose to it. And then, when it gets into Arbogast's investigation after that, things start moving very quickly. Mm. I was thinking, the pacing is... There's something odd about this here. Despite all this, you know, when that came in, I thought, God, what a privilege to see this in a cinema with this sound and it's this classic scene. You know, and it reminded me, yes, this this is this is Psycho. Psycho is like this big and this important, and it has lasted for a reason. You know, yeah. Even if for me, it does actually come down to scenes and sequences more than the entire film as a whole. Yes, I agree. Yeah, but my God, you know, kind of those sequences are, and some of the imagery, just some of the imagery. But you know sequences, you know, and use of point of view, mm. and just the story, the visual storytelling. I mean, it has to be amongst the greatest ever made. Mm. So, do you think it's Hitchcock's best? Oh God, no. <laughs> What's his best? You reckon? Um, Are you going to go sight and sound on me and say it's Vertigo? No, I I really love. And now you know I'm so old and stupid. I'm forgetting the name of the film, but we can look it up. It's the film with Joseph Cotton where he plays a serial killer, and he goes back to his hometown. It's from 1942. Beyond, beyond a reasonable doubt. Oh uh, right, yeah, it is. You know, I think that's just like a masterpiece of cinema. I think that's his greatest. Beyond a reasonable doubt, fifty-six. It says here. Oh no, sorry. Oh, no, that's Fritz Lang. Who? Am I? Shadow of a doubt. Shadow. That's of doubt. why. That's sorry. why I can think yeah. of it. <laughs> Shadow of a yes. doubt. Yeah, I think that's his greatest. Yeah. Okay. Um. So you know, my God, he's got something to choose from. Well, yeah, and, and like uh, like all the classic directors, I haven't seen enough of them. Although I have seen a few. Notorious um, is magnificent, and again, I think Notorious on a big screen must be out of this world, really. Well, we saw it on big screen. What did we? Sure, we saw. Well, we definitely podcasted on it. I'm sure we went to see it, maybe at the Electric. But oh, I thought I had bought the. the oh, I'm sure you have, but yeah. I think we saw it at the cinema. Yeah. All right. Okay. So I, you know, I love. Uh, I, I mean. You know, I love almost all of them, really. I actually did one summer watch all his sound films in chronological order. I think I remember that, because you were posting about it every fucking five minutes. Exactly. <laughs> they were, you know, I think even his worst has just magnificent things in them, you know. Mm. So, uh, you know, a, a kind of um, an affirmation of, if not the auteur theory, certainly film authorship. <laughs> <laughs> All right, do you want to add anything else? Well, I mean, I'm glad that we managed to talk about it in an interesting way, or at least what I think was interesting, because one of the things I said to you, you said, do you want to go and see this? And I went, nah. And and partly it's because I felt I'd seen it a lot, and I didn't know what you know what I'd get out of it another time, which I was definitely proved wrong, because I hadn't seen it like this, mm-hmm. on a cinema screen like this, you know. But the other thing was, I thought, how, how are you going to talk about the most talked about film of all time? You I know? think, but actually, there are things to talk about, and and there are there are things that I got out of the experience, anew. I did not expect to. 
And also, I think that's an ego thing, to be honest, because, you know, I think our podcast is not about being the last word on something or being right about something or having to have, like, you know, it's it's just an exploration of the experience that we had yeah, that yeah. we think will be of interesting and, you know, and informative no, I, to others. I so. had no intention of being the last word. I just wondered whether we would be a word <laughs> <laughs> amongst all the other words. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I think it's the conversation that's interesting because, you know, I feel like just in the process of having it, I feel I clarify my thoughts, I learn something, mm. you know, and I hope kind of, you know, people who listen to us will feel the same. Yeah. If, if you do, let us know. <laughs> if you don't, you know, keep to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and that is an ego thing. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much for listening. We're eavesdropping at the movies and we are on. Apple Podcasts, uh, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud and YouTube. On social media, we can get in touch, uh, is uh, Facebook and Twitter. And our website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And well done, England women, for winning the Euros a few minutes ago, which we were watching. Brilliant. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Great to see